And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome, I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest mentor is Michael Milken. Beginning in 1969, Mike helped revolutionize capital markets by pricing and rewarding risk more efficiently. The thousands of companies he financed collectively created millions of jobs. His philanthropy, which began in the 1970s and paralleled his business career, expanded in 1982 with the establishment of the Milken Family Foundation. Mike is also chairman of the Milken Institute, an economic think tank that hosts more than 200 annual conferences and other events around the world. The Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University offers 30 degree options. The Milken Center for Advancing the American Dream will open next year, we hope. Mike graduated from Berkeley with highest honors and earned his MBA at the Wharton School where he was a Joseph Wharton Fellow. He and his wife, Lori, have been married 55 years and they have three children and 10 grandchildren. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, Faster Cures, Mike's memoir on his work in medical research and public health over the past half century and his mission to find fast cures for serious disease. Welcome, Mike. Dan, it's wonderful to see you. I'm sorry we're not together in person. I am as well. By the way, in reading uh, your book, it was great. I learned a lot about health, but I also learned a lot about you. What I got a kick out of was when you were young, you loved reading the World Almanac. When, when I was a kid, my mom and dad would get me the World Almanac and any atlas they could find. And my oldest son was kind of the same way. Any any reference book we could give him, he was just happy sitting and reading it and memorizing the tables, just like I think the two of us. What does it say about us? Is there something, you're the medical expert, is there something wrong with us or are we just weird? I don't think so. You know, I I discovered when I was maybe seven or eight that most people didn't do research. And if you asked them, they would give you their opinions or they would say things. And if you asked them, where did they learn that? Where did it come from? No one ever did research. And hmm. it really, at a very young age, it's not that they just didn't know every state or every capital or every river or mountain, but they really didn't have knowledge of the educational system and many of these others. And it really has dominated my life, Dan, in a sense. When I went to work in finance, I discovered that pretty much every single professor Every person ahead of the Treasury, every person ahead of the Federal Reserve, everything they said about credit was wrong. And the facts were there and the data was there. And so I think it led to a life of research, which obviously has culminated in many ways with our health efforts over the last 50 years. And the promise today that you can sequence your own genome, you can sequence your disease, you can sequence your microbiome. And now we offer a generation of precision health coupled with prevention. So 
it isn't just intuition that your best doctors know. It's really a situation where we can know who you are biologically and gives us an opportunity to give you the right treatment for your disease, not a general disease. Well, Mike, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, I, I love that picture where Sally Field is standing in front of you, the future actress, and you, you, know, you went to high school in L.A., but you experienced something very young. You experienced really the 60s. You experienced the Watts riots, civil unrest. What was it about growing up and being a young person at that time that helped influence your decision early on to get into, you know, and really major at Berkeley in finance and business? Well, my first goal after 57 was to run the space program. I had never missed a math or science program. I wrote a letter to President Eisenhower that was willing to run the space program. I was 11 years old. Unfortunately, I didn't get the assignment. Uh, and I actually went to Berkeley uh, to eventually run the space program. Uh, and the free speech movement started there shortly after I arrived in Berkeley in 64. Uh, but it was the Watts riots that you spoke about, August 11th, 1965, that caused me to give up my dream of running the space program to focus on finance. And I met a young African-American man who told me he would not have access to capital because of the color of his skin. Uh, his father didn't have a chance because of the color of skin. And there he was looking at the burned out factory. He had no job married, no money, and a child. And I understood the despair and the frustration he had. So that caused me to go back to Berkeley, change my major to finance, um, and begin what I saw as the democratization of capital. How do we get capital into the hands of people with ability, a dream, and a vision where we're focused on the future, not the past? So um, on the subject of democratization of capital, you know, and you mentioned it in um, one of your, I think your first answer about the data, you read a, a, a book, I think it was by Hickman, that said that, uh, you know, financial markets overestimated the risk in higher yielding investments. You know, you're known as being, you know, somebody who, you know, was really kind of a pioneer in the so-called, you know, junk bond era. How did that democratize capital? Well, he did an amazing job and it was four volumes. And he showed he analyzed every single debt issue issued between 1900 and I believe 1944 during the Depression. And you saw that even during the Depression, that the best credit was corporate. The worst credit was countries that were considered the best. And the second worst was individuals who were defaulting. And at this time, most people, whether they were in the Federal Reserve or Treasury, were telling you the best credit was countries. But the whole history of credit for sovereign nations is one of default. And yes, they might not go bankrupt. But today you have countries that have defaulted 12 or 13 or 14 times in their history. And it was really a young man named Alexander Hamilton, when the debt of the United States was yeah. trading at 15 cents on the dollar band, who instead of defaulting, 
developed a strategy to grow out of it. And the U.S. paid off all of their obligations at 100 cents on the dollar. And so it was really this disconnect between the research I had done as a 19-year-old at Berkeley. And I had access to the Chris tapes because I was a student free and what people were saying and the realization that 99%, probably 99.99% of every company in the world is non-investment grade. So you can imagine I'm focused on the 99.99% and everyone was focused on the 0.01. And you've lived yourself, Dan, at both ends. Mm-hmm. AT&T, which is today triple B at one time was a triple A. Uh, And Sprint, when you joined, it was probably a triple C. But Sprint had that spectrum and the potential and today has empowered T-Mobile. And so what you saw in the last 30 years of the 20th century is 62 million jobs created in the private sector by non-investment grade companies and minus four created. And so this was a mission I was on. And one of the five goals which I had set out in the mid-60s, I got married on August 11th, 1968, three years later, so I would never forget that day. It was an interesting day. My wife wanted to know why are we getting married on August 11th. I told her this was the day that forever will have changed our history, but also the history of the world. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, philanthropist Mike Milken. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with financial innovator Mike Milken. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, iHeart, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at thementorsradio.com. So, Mike, you were having a very successful career on Wall Street. I think the year was 1976, and you call it a pivotal year in your life. I think the fulcrum. Um, of your life. Why? All of my economic theories had proved to be correct in a very difficult period of 74. Uh, Most people were projecting that numerous bankruptcies, companies failing, and I had said based on history, they would not. I was on a forum in 1974 with a professor that's very famous, and he told everyone his Z-scores were predicting 700 major bankruptcies in the United States. We were on a program in 77 when he told everyone, I think I was the only one that was there in 74, that he had predicted the four major bankruptcies. What he didn't tell him is he had predicted 700, of which four happened. So I became independently wealthy. We were very successful. We were the largest trading group on Wall Street. And then I called the chapter, Life Gets in the Way. So I, my oldest son started having seizures that year in 76. 
we had never seen a full grand mal seizure. When we took him to the low hospital, we thought he was going to die. Eventually, we discovered there was a solution to his seizures. And then when I came out to see my parents, my father looked in poor health, and I discovered that his melanoma had returned. So you have a plan, you have a strategy, and I could help refinance the country, any company, um, but in traveling the country and visiting all the cancer centers, I could not find a solution for my father's melanoma. And I concluded at that time that science could not move fast enough to save his life. So it was a year I decided with my wife, Lori, we were to return to California. And I wanted our two sons to know my father before he died. He died about nine months after we returned. I eventually moved more than a thousand people, including their families, uh, back to Los Angeles at the time. But the plan of what I was focused on it changed dramatically now. And I recognized that medical research, you had to get going a lot earlier. And the data that I had in access in finance, one of the other of my five goals in 1965 was to invert the pyramid on Wall Street, where selling was the most important argument or development and got paid the most and make it research. And so now I began to set out on the concept of medical research and how we could solve these problems at that time. So it became the fulcrum and the family moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. And uh, it began my search for how we could accelerate medical research. So this hits if it's possible, even closer to home, I think it was 92, over 30 years ago, you were diagnosed with terminal cancer, you know, and you're still here with us. Uh, some of our listeners have been diagnosed or many of their love or some of their loved ones have been diagnosed with cancer. What advice would you have for our listeners who are trying to find the right treatment? So Dana was, um, February of 1993 that I was diagnosed, and I'm the happiest uh, guest you've ever had to be on your show 30 and a half years later. Hmm. Uh, but uh, it was a rude awakening. I had now been supporting medical research for almost 20 years, but more as a donor. And now they had given me, say, 18 months to live. I had to find a different strategy. I had to accelerate science. And I remember after traveling the country, I came to Wentford, the head of oncology uh, at UCLA. And after we had reviewed my records, uh, my wife, Lori, and I sat down with him looking for a solution. And he told me his solution was that I should hire a psychiatrist. We should get psychologists for the kids. I should get my affairs in order. And I asked him if he wouldn't mind. I thought I might try to do a few things first. And so um, I saw now for 20 years, the traditional way medical research and care went on. Technology was improving, but in 93, you could not sequence. It was the beginning of the efforts of Francis Collins, a good friend, to sequence the human genome, but it wasn't completed for 10 years. 
And so it was uh, a visit I had to MD Anderson at a conference. And I commented at this conference to the person in charge, Dr. Annie von Eschenbach, who later became a head of the National Cancer Institute and the FDA, that I didn't see anyone at Memorial Sloan Kettering at this conference. And he told me they viewed Memorial Sloan Kettering as a major competitor of MD Anderson. And I told him not to the patient. And so if we're going to move science along, we need collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so we set out three things. One, recruit the best and brightest to work in medical research. Two, trying to convince people of the future and staying in the field of medical research. And three, collaboration. So our funding that we offered, uh, we would not fund you unless you shared your information. Many people told us their work was so important that we had to wait for Nature or Cell Magazine to publish it. And then they would share. We told them that our money was for people that weren't as important. Uh, and therefore, they would have no trouble raising money. Within six months, every single researcher in the world that we interacted with agreed to share their information. And so we now had collaboration. Andy Grove, who at the time was the head of Intel, uh, we worked out the technology. So it was actually easier for a person, if I use those two research centers, uh, MD Anderson, to talk to someone at Memorial than it was to talk to someone in your own institution. And it really changed the course of history. The first diagnosis you got, which was get your affairs in order, when should people consider getting a second opinion? You should always consider getting a second opinion and a mm. third. Now, the world is totally different today, 30 years later, Dan. Uh, I can We can sequence your own genome so we know who you are. We can sequence your disease so we know what is your disease. There's more than 28 types of prostate cancer, many types of breast cancer. Uh, look, and so we can't treat it as a disease. We have to treat your disease. Uh, second, uh, so yourself, your genome, second, your disease, and third, your microbiome. So your gut or your microbiome in Indian medicine is known as your second brain. Now, this, this has only been around for 5,000 years. And when I adopted those ideas in 93, people would tell me, boy, this is a quack idea. I said, yes, it's a quack idea that's been around for 5,000 years. And so they believed uh, that your microbiome. So yes, technology is available to everyone today called CRISPR. We have the ability to change your genes. If you think of it like spell checked, you've got uh, a letter that's misspelled, you can change it. But what are the causes and results of doing that? For sickle cell anemia and others, we've initiated, but it'll be 10 or 20 years before we start changing your genes. So now you can focus on changing how your genes are expressed. And in 93, when we put forth this idea, enormous skepticism. Today, the FDA has now approved treatments to give the microbiome of one person 
to a microbiome of another. So if this person responded well to treatment and you responded poorly, today it's done by an enema, we can transfer. But you can start to change your microbiome within seven days. So the world is so much different today, Dan, than it was 30 years ago in this area. We will be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Mike Milken, discussing his new book, Faster Cures. Remember, you can listen live to our Saturday broadcasts anywhere in the world by going to San Francisco, 860 AM, The Answer. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentor's Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with philanthropist Mike Milken about curing serious disease. So, uh, Mike, you call the medical research process kind of too deliberate and incremental, which could stand in the way of large kind of massive breakthroughs. How can the process be sped up? Well, data, computer speed, storage today, Dan, when I think back to 1965, when I began my research on credit, uh, there was a lot of data that I could refer to. But if you wanted to analyze medical, you could not. The files were too big. Now the computers are a million times faster. Data storage is one billionth of the cost. Uh, there's enormous opportunities. And I was on a commission uh, for a former governor Brown in California. And the idea was the commission was the personalized medicine commission. We would personalize your treatment. Then once we had data, we changed our name eight months later to the precision medicine commission. And by the time we submitted our report a year and a half or two mark, we changed our name again to the precision health. So the ability to focus on prevention, not just treating a disease. Uh, heredity tells us a lot. Percentages tell us a lot. And so we'd all rather not get a life-threatening disease than have early detection. And so that's why we became Precision Health. And therefore, there's a lot of key elements. It all starts with something you know well, Dan, talent. You want to have a great football team, you better have some good players. You want to have a great company, you better have some good leaders. And the same thing in medicine. Can we recruit the best and brightest to work in this field? And most people aren't aware, yes, every life, every human life is precious and priceless. But more than 50% of all economic growth in the last 200 years can be traced to advances in medical research and public health. So how do we attract and retain the talent to work in this field? Are they technology literate today with all this data? Next, are they collaborating? Are we finding a way to foster new ideas, new approaches? To just give you an example, one of the leading young scientist doctors I met in 1993 was a man named Jonathan Simons. He later left John Hopkins, where I met him, and started the leading cancer center in the Atlanta area, funded by the Woodruff family that founded Coca-Cola at Emory. We then reached out to him 
to become the CEO of the Prostate Cancer Foundation. When I first met him in 93, he was doing breakthrough work on trying to sequence genes or understand genes. Today, a $5,000 machine can do more than 1 million times as much as Jonathan did in 93. Why you go to lunch, if you're a researcher, you can simulate in a computer how one molecule might attach to another. So we have the ability to compress time dramatically today, but we need that cooperation between people with a knowledge of technology. And so numerous companies have begun that have loaded the data on people that have a particular disease, what their genome looked like, what the genome of their disease looked like, even what their microbiome looked at, and have received treatment and what were the outcomes. So your doctor who was extremely intuitive now doesn't have to wonder, is this the best path for you because you have the data available? And so the data is available today in 2023, similar to the data that was available to me to analyze in the financial markets in 1965. And this will change treatment as we know it today. Well, Michael, one of the things you talk about in your book as well is the importance of diet. And what have you learned about that? Well, it's been a long journey. You know, uh, all of my relatives who were diagnosed with some life-threatening disease died. And I was thinking in 93, okay, my prognosis is maybe worse than all of them. What could I do? What didn't they do? So for two years, I didn't eat anything except raw fruits and vegetables. Well, I was trying to figure out, I didn't know if it would work, but I think the goal in my view was anything that's reversible uh, and wasn't gonna hurt me, I should try. And in the 93-4 period, I tried to convince our researchers that you are what you eat. The answer to me was prove it, prove it. Well, you couldn't prove it. You couldn't sequence, you couldn't prove it. You couldn't prove that I was right and you couldn't prove that they were wrong. And when I tried to, at our scientific retreat, in 94, to bring a Dr. David Heber, who founded the Center for Human Nutrition at UCLA, PhD, MD, to speak, they told me we would lose all credibility by having fake science of nutrition. By 2019, I went to our scientific retreat with leaders from around the world, and 15 to 20% of every single session was your microbiome and cancer. So it shows you in, in that period of time of 26 years, the world has changed. And it was a very simple answer to your question. When I was visiting with Bob Bradway, CEO of the world's largest biotech company, Amgem, he told me that there was gonna be this new wonder drug. And what's the wonder drug? Prevention. And so what we said was it's quite possible the produce section of the grocery store will be the pharmacy of the 21st century. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Mike Milken, discussing advances in medical research. This is Dan Hesse, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. 
And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Mike Milken about food as medicine. Well, Mike, let me change gears here. You know, in your book, you mentioned that the IMF estimated that the last COVID pandemic cost the world economy $30 trillion. You know, what lessons did we learn from the COVID pandemic that'll improve our response to the next pandemic? Well, I think, uh, Dan, we estimated it was costing just the U.S. $1 trillion a month. Hmm. And so I was in a conference we had in Johannesburg. I had just come out of the Middle East where we had put a conference on for the Milken Institute. And the entire Chinese delegation had canceled. And then the Italian delegation. And as I was headed home from Johannesburg, so it's one of the longest flights in the world to get to L.A. Uh, and all I could think about were these clouds forming. So when I got back, I pulled in the heads of all the senators in the Milk and Institute and told them we would all be judged by what we did during this period of time. And if one day, every day we could shorten it might save 10 to 25,000 lives. So we really needed to really reorient. I and Dan began doing podcasts. I turned my library in my house into a little podcast studio. And so if I was talking to Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, I wanted to make sure anyone in the world who cared could be part of the conversation. And your listeners might not know, but when you do these podcasts, you have to get prepared. You have to study the issues, etc. And so I invested almost 10 hours in each one of these. And if it was the head of J&J at the time, Alex Gorsky, my goal was to get him to get their uh, vaccines and antivirals into clinical trials immediately. And when I was interviewing him, he told me they're going to start in January of 2021. And I asked him, really, why not next week? And so they eventually began. I talked to them in April. They began in June. But most people are not aware that it was only nine weeks, 63 days between the first vaccine, in this case, Moderna, mm -hmm. was put into a human being after sequencing the virus. And the reason I wrote this book was that we are on the verge of being able to deal with future pandemics, accelerate the cure for life-threatening diseases, if we would keep our foot on the accelerator and continue what we learned but the natural and tendency of government is to back off once you've solved this problem and because the next one pops up. So what happened here that was different? One, all 10 centers of the Milken Institute reoriented their focus. Two, pharma changed its focus. You had pharmaceutical companies actually shut down their manufacturing plants and converted to manufacture a competitor's product. The US government at BARDA under HHS put up 20 to 30 billion to build manufacturing facilities before we even knew if it worked, before the products, the antivirals or vaccines worked. Third, 
They put up money to manufacture the antivirals and to bank them and the vaccines before we knew if they worked. But when you're when it's costing you lives, which were priceless, and a trillion dollars a year, investing 20 to 30. So we had unprecedented cooperation. Many of Lori's and my partners in the giving pledge, some of them diverted almost a half a billion a year of their philanthropy to work on this around the world. And so the cooperation was unprecedented. And the investment that didn't exist in the 70s, the RNA vaccine that people had worked on for 15 years and had been suggested to shut down was now available to be deployed. So the question today really is all these lessons that have been learned. And my comment is there were plenty of mistakes made. But there's plenty of time for Monday morning quarterbacks to go back and we can analyze what we should have, should have not done. But during this period of time, we needed all hands on deck and we needed to deploy everything that was at our disposal. A company like Pfizer, under, under Burla, their CEO, reoriented, moved their talent to work in this area, invested $2 billion of their own money, did not take any government money. And there was a documentary made called Science Works uh, along those lines on what they had done, just one company. And I did podcast after podcast, maybe 125 or more on the subject around the world. What were companies doing? What is a company like E&Y going to do when it has employees all over the world and 20 to 30,000 affiliates in, say, China? What was their experience? What was going on in Germany? What was going on in Italy? So if you had employees, what were these other companies and how were they dealing with it? Not everything that we recommended came a reality. Uh, we suggested bringing in CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, Target, Costco, Albertsons, Kroger, who interact with almost every single person in the United States every week uh, to be involved with distribution. The government decided to turn that over to each one of the 50 states to work their strategy. Those, you know, a Walmart, only 30% of the population visits a Sam Club or a Walmart. They have those huge parking lots. We could have easily put a container with, cut a hole and dealt with it. So, in the next pandemic, we might have learned there was a better way in distribution. And I would say one of the most enlightening things we saw, Dan, was I had looked at two previous we could call pandemics. They never were pandemics. One was polio in the 1950s. My father had polio, but he died from melanoma. Uh, and there were economists telling us that polio was going to bankrupt the United States in the 1950s because we'd have to build so many iron lung hotels in order to keep them alive. Three years later, we had a vaccine, except a year and a half after it was approved, less than 1% of all teenagers had taken the vaccine. What changed the course of history? And I wrote about it in the book. 
a young man named Elvis Presley got vaccinated on the number one variety show, Ed Sullivan. Yeah. And we went from less than 1% of teenagers being vaccinated to more than 80% in six months. Maybe that's Taylor Swift today, you know? <laughs> and so our goal was, could we find yeah. Elvis Presley in 2020? And we could not find one person that 30% yeah. of the population, if they said get vaccine, get vaccinated wouldn't. And so it yeah. was a challenge. And there were other examples. I'd say the other was AIDS, where Oprah went on television and said one in five Americans are going to die from AIDS. A number did, but it was less than one hundredth of what was predicted. So medical research and our medical institutions have solved these problems, and we need to continue to focus on what they're capable of doing. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, philanthropist Mike Milken. You will find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. For those of you who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or another podcast platform, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a positive review and tell a friend. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with innovator Mike Milken discussing success. So, Mike, how do you define success in life? Well, I think it first starts with your family, Dan. Hmm. You know, when I was first diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, I was no different than anyone else. Are you going to see your kids grow up? Are you going to be around to see them get married? Are you going to see grandchildren? And, you know, today, Lori and I have been blessed with 10 grandchildren. I'll say all three of our children happily married. And so that's one area. The second area, I would say, is a quantitative area. You have an idea of a problem you want to solve. And can you solve that problem? You set out on a road, did it work? Today, you know, for example, a number of years ago, we were focused on the fact that African-American men had almost 100% higher death rate than non-African-American men from prostate cancer. We set up a program with the VA, arranged for when you enter the VA to be also entering the leading cancer center in the community. And we've reduced the death rate by 50% now for African-American men. And so it's a quantifiable success. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's so many challenges that you set out. And to me, there's goals. But I, I believe my legacy is not thousands of companies or the people that run the financial system that used to work for me today. But my grandchildren and yours, Dan, have a chance to see the 22nd century. Are they good contributors to society? Uh, and to me, that's extremely important. And I think it's the ground. It's really the grounding for happiness. I know all the people that used to work for me, if they had someone that loved them, and if you're a believer in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Having someone that actually cares about you besides your dog, uh, that's important too. 
you're better at work. You're going to accomplish more because you're not worried about taking risk or trying something new because you know you have a strong base. For some people, it's their religion or their faith. For some, there's their families uh, from that standpoint. But when I look back at one success that I'm talking to you 30 and a half years later, or there's 18 million people in America today who've had cancer that are living normal, healthy lives. And that we've taken things like leukemia. It was 90 days for a child to be diagnosed with leukemia to the graveyard. Today, 95% of all kids uh, are essentially in total remission that have leukemia. So you can measure it quantifiably, but I would say setting out goals in life that you want to achieve uh, helps you and having a strong family. And Lori and I, as you know, next week we'll be celebrating our 55th uh, wedding anniversary. That's amazing. Well, thanks for joining us today, Mike. You bring to mind, to me, one of my favorite quotes, it's Mark Twain. And he said, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day that you find out why. You know, reading your book and listening to you today, you know, it gives me hope that we're going to all live healthier, uh, longer lives in the future. To our listeners, please go to TheMentorsRadio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us online on any device at any time on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. Dan, wonderful to be with you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.